Well, sadly, none of us at the moment are enjoying road trips. We're all quite rightly staying local and just exploring the few miles around where we live. But one day we'll be able to travel much further afield again to visit long distance friends and places. And it's something I'm sure that many of us are really looking forward to. But we're not the first people in history to enjoy the gift of long distance travel. Back in the first century, most of the people around the Mediterranean Sea lived in densely packed cities. And those cities were connected by a network of roads built by the Romans. And that made it pretty easy to move around, to do business, and even to spread new ideas. And one person who became very familiar with those roads was the Apostle Paul. He spent a good portion of his time traveling up and down those roads from city to city. But these were no ordinary road trips. Paul was traveling from place to place to announce the reign of a new king, a king the likes of whom people had never seen or heard of before. And the real life story of Paul's travels and how people responded to his message is what the second half of Acts is all about. Now, if you can cast your minds back a whole month to our last RBT Sunday, we started with what was really the theme sentence of the book of Acts. Acts chapter one, verse eight, where Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the first 12 chapters of the book focused on the beginning of the Christian church. In Jerusalem, as the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus's disciples and they began to tell others about what Jesus had done. And following that, we saw the gospel quickly spread out of Jerusalem and into the, the wider area of Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus had promised. Now, Acts 13 to 28 picks up and continues that same story as the gospel begins its unstoppable spread out towards the ends of the earth. Chapter 12 ended with Paul and Barnabas returning to the church in Antioch, having been down to Jerusalem delivering some famine relief there. And uh, Well, they're not long back in Antioch before we read in chapter 13, verse 2, that while the church were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so begins the first of three long, eventful and truly exciting missionary journeys for Paul and his friends throughout much of the Roman Empire. In total, these journeys will take up just over a decade including stops along the way, and cover a distance for Paul of over 7,000 miles. And it's these missionary journeys that take up Luke's account from chapters 13 to 20. So that's the first of our two main headings for this morning, Paul's missionary journeys, chapters 13 to 20. Now, you might notice on this morning's handout that I've also included some maps there for you to enjoy. Now, I know that some people love maps and some people are not so keen. But what makes these maps special is that they not just that they show 
where Paul and his friends traveled and the routes that they followed, more importantly, they show us where the gospel traveled and how it quickly spread to real people in real towns and cities all over the Mediterranean world, transforming thousands of real everyday lives. And Paul's journeys take him to places with names that will be familiar to many of us. Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus, Rome, Galatia. The New Testament is full of letters that bear these names as their title. Letters that Paul would one day write to the Christians in these cities. But here is where these churches began. Here is how they first came to hear the good news about Jesus. Now, Paul made three of these long missionary journeys in all out from his home church in Antioch. You can see how long each one of them lasted and the chapters that cover them if you take a look at the handout and the maps. But where in the last RBT, we went through chapters 1 to 12, chapter by chapter, this section from 13 to 20 is a little bit harder to do like that in such a short space of time this morning. But we don't necessarily have to. Because what we find when we come to read them is that many of the same things keep arising wherever Paul and his friends go. So what I'd like to do in this first section this morning is, is just draw our attention to three repeated themes, three vital truths that chapters 13 to 20 teach us about the message of the gospel. The first is that the gospel is a message for everyone. It's a message for Jews and Gentiles. Now, that word Gentiles is going to come up a lot, especially in the second half of Acts. So it's helpful to have a definition of it in case we're not quite sure exactly what it means. Quite simply, a Gentile is a person who is not ethnically Jewish. So you and I, unless you're ethnically Jewish, are Gentiles. And the message of Christianity, as demonstrated repeatedly in these chapters, is very much for all peoples, both Jew and Gentile. So every time Paul and his companions arrive in a town or a city, they always go first to proclaim Jesus to the Jews in the local synagogue. The Jews of all people should, of course, be the most prepared to accept Jesus. He is, after all, the Jewish Messiah, the one that the Old Testament had told them to be looking out for. And Paul's first synagogue visit in chapter 13 really sets the pattern for what happens in all the other towns and cities that follow. Paul's message to the Jews, wherever he goes, is essentially this, that God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, who is the fulfilment of all of God's Old Testament promises. Paul tells them that Jesus is the promised Christ the king come to save them from their sins, that he was wrongfully condemned and put to death on a cross. But this was in fact all in keeping with God's plan. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. It really is the most incredible good news. As Paul tells them in chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
He wants them to know that the gospel promises forgiveness and a freedom, the likes of which they've never known before. And each time there are many Jewish people who believe that's something we mustn't miss. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But what also happens every time Paul arrives in a new city and preaches first to the Jews is that some people react violently against his message and throw him out of the synagogue. And more often than not, it's the Jewish religious leaders who are responsible. Verse 45, when they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And so each time in each city, look out for this when you read it. Once this happens, Paul and his companions move out into the marketplace to announce the gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Which, of course, is met with great joy by the Gentiles. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Well, what does all of this mean? Simply this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, by God's own design, is for all people everywhere, both Jew and Gentile. Wherever a person is from, whatever their background or ethnicity, the gospel is totally inclusive. It always has been and always will be. You don't have to be born into a certain family or brought up a certain way. The gospel is God's invitation to one and all. The only people it excludes are those who can't bring themselves to believe it. Those who Paul and Barnabas describe in verse 46 of chapter 13 as thrusting God's word aside. And so essentially judging themselves unworthy of eternal life, Paul says. Because the gospel message really is, as Paul says in Romans chapter one, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And its inclusive nature is on display wherever Paul and his friends go. In every place that they share it throughout these chapters, incredibly diverse kinds of people come and respond. Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious, rich and poor, men and women, slave and free. But the question of the gospel's inclusivity really comes to a head at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, at what's commonly referred to as the Jerusalem Council. This is in chapter 15. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, tells us that this is what was happening. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So what exactly is the question that's under debate? The question is simply this. Do non-Jewish people need to become Jewish, observing the laws and the traditions of the Jewish people in order to truly become Christians and a part of God's family? Now, it's not that Paul and Barnabas don't already know the answer, but they're deeply concerned about how widely this new teaching is spreading. And so they travel to Jerusalem and standing there together with Peter and James before the council, they all respond with a passionate, no, no way. You don't need to become a Jew in order to be saved. Because as Peter reminds everyone, God's plan was always to welcome the nations into his covenant family. It was also God himself who announced that Peter and Paul would take the good news to the Gentiles. And as Peter goes on to explain, chapter 15, verse 8 and 9, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, bore witness to the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, the Jews. And he made no distinction between us and them, between Jew and Gentile, having cleansed their hearts by faith. But the apostles also see that this issue runs much deeper. The question that's really being asked is, what do you need to do to be saved? Do you need to trust in Jesus and do some other things too? A few good works, some religious rituals, a sort of some sort of personal self-improvement plan in order to be acceptable to God? Are we saved by a combination of God's grace plus some human effort? Well, as Paul would go on to passionately write in his letter to the Galatians, such teaching is really another gospel. In fact, it's no gospel at all. Anything that attempts to supplant the complete sufficiency of Christ's saving work on the cross is a false gospel and it cannot save anybody because salvation is solely by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. As Peter puts it in chapter 15, verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will which also captures the second theme that's repeated here throughout chapters 13 to 20, that the gospel is always and only a message of grace alone. As the decisions uh, made at the Jerusalem Council are reported back to the churches throughout the region, chapter 15 verse 31 tells us that the churches rejoice at the encouragement In fact, whenever the message of salvation by grace alone is emphasized in the book of Acts, churches are strengthened in the faith and they increase in numbers daily. And things haven't changed for us today. Still today, churches are strengthened and new people are saved when the gospel of grace is firmly held onto and held forth. But when churches lose sight of the gospel, when they compromise on its claims, when they try to smuggle good works or religious rituals into what you need to do to get right with God, well, then churches quickly die 
and nobody gets saved. Gospel truth really matters, which is one big reason why throughout the second half of Acts, we see that Paul is just as committed to discipleship as he is to evangelism. It's kind of easy to miss at first, but throughout his his three missionary journeys, Paul isn't only spending his time telling new people about Jesus. He could quite easily have done so. There were so many people in the many towns and cities he visited who needed to hear the gospel for the very first time. And yet Paul counted it just as important to disciple those who'd already become Christians, discipling them especially in the knowledge of the gospel of grace. And so Paul would stay on in particular cities. He spent 18 months in Corinth in Acts 18 and two years in Ephesus in Acts 19. He'd also revisit places that he'd been to before, as Acts 14 tells us, strengthening the souls of believers and encouraging them to continue in the faith. He'd also write the church's letters, and we'll hear a bit more about those later on. But he gave time to all these things because the message of salvation by grace alone really matters. And it's vital that Christians and churches continue to walk in it each and every day of their lives. And the third and final repeated theme here that I want to draw our attention to in these chapters is that the gospel is a message that challenges every hearer. Gospel is a message that challenges all who hear it. Wherever Paul and his friends went, you could guarantee one thing, their message would provoke a reaction. Some people loved it. Other people hated it. Everyone was challenged by it. First of all, it challenged people's thinking. People had just never heard or seen anything quite like Christianity before. And I think actually that's still true today. Here in the middle, uh, for Paul and his friends, of a pluralistic culture where most people were open to worshipping many different gods, Here were these Christians claiming that there's just one God who's revealed himself in Jesus. At first glance, that might have seemed pretty narrow and exclusive as people looked on. But then again, these Christians were also a multi-ethnic, wildly inclusive community who were drawing in people from every imaginable place, uh, geographically and socially and economically. They were renowned, they had a reputation for welcoming everyone and treating everybody as equals. And that was a great challenge to the way that most people thought, that that there could be just one God, but with such an inclusive message. Second, the gospel challenged people's way of life. Often those who you see most strongly rejecting the gospel in the book of Acts do so because they see the threat that it poses to the way that they're currently living. One of the repeated concerns that people have is not, is this message true, but is this message comfortable? Will it disrupt disrupt my life or, or require me to change? Will it affect my status or position in society? Will it make me poorer? In fact, that last one was a big concern for some people in Philippi in Acts 16 and And again, then in Ephesus in Acts 19, then and now the gospel deeply challenges people's way of life. Thirdly, we see the gospel challenging people's allegiances. 
One of the repeated accusations against Paul and his friends in Acts is that they were guilty of treason. Chapter 17, verse 6, uh, they're accused of this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And it's true. The Christians really were announcing another king, one true king who rules over everyone and everything who is worthy of our complete allegiance. But they weren't looking to stage some kind of political revolt because Jesus's rule is far more personal. It cuts much deeper. It calls on every human heart to surrender and bow down before him. And fourthly, to challenge people's allegiances. Fourthly, then, the gospel continually challenged people's beliefs. In today's world, just like in the Roman world, it's often considered offensive to challenge what someone else believes. But Paul and his friends loved people enough to point out to them where they were wrong. Several times, uh, Acts 19 is a really good example of this. Paul tries to help his listeners to see that worshipping and living for inanimate objects, whether it's a gold statue or money or food or TV or uh, a reputation or a fancy house, really is just foolish and futile. They may be nice things, but they make lousy gods. They're not worth building your whole life around. We were made for something much better. And I love Paul's words to the people of Lystra in chapter 14, verse 15. He says to them, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That's what makes their willingness to challenge people's beliefs a loving thing, because the call to turn to God, the living God, is such good news. Where people are wasting their lives and banking their hope on vain and worthless things, it's loving to help them see that there is a living God who loves them and who made them for himself. And so in our gospel witness too, out of love for people, we have to be willing to share this message that is designed by God to challenge people, to challenge all who hear it. It's the only way that those very same people can discover for themselves the incomparable joy and freedom of coming to know God in Jesus. It's the same message that over a course of a decade across three, Paul's three missionary journeys turned the world upside down, transforming thousands of lives and establishing a multitude of new church families all around the Roman Empire. But the story of Acts doesn't end there. Moving on to our second two of two, our main, second main heading for this morning, the final eight chapters of Acts tell us about how Paul's witness ultimately spreads to Rome. And this is very much a new episode in the story of Paul's ministry. Up to now, he's been a free man most of the time, able to go wherever he pleases to spread the news about Jesus. Now he's about to lose that freedom. But as we'll see, that won't in any way hinder his witness. 
It all begins when at the end of his third missionary journey, Paul sets his sights on returning to Jerusalem, again to deliver financial help to the church there. Now, even though he's pretty much certain that opposition and imprisonment awaits him there, he's determined to go for the sake of the gospel. As he told the Ephesian elders back in chapter 20, verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, in fact, out of deep love and affection for him, many of his friends, including Luke, urge him not to go. They see how dangerous it is, but Paul assures them that he knows what he's doing, that he is ready, chapter 21, verse 13, ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul and uh, along with Luke and several others, make their way to Jerusalem together. When they arrive, they receive a warm welcome from James and the other Christians there. But almost as quickly, Paul finds himself in trouble with the Jewish religious leaders at the temple. Cornering him there in the temple and stirring up an angry mob against him, they accuse him, chapter 22, verse 28, of teaching everyone everywhere against the Jewish people and the law and the temple, which really isn't true, but that's what they accuse him of. And then they drag him outside, intent by this point on killing him. And it's remarkable to see just how similar these events are to those in Acts 7 with Stephen. If you remember those from last time, Stephen faced the very same false accusations that he'd been speaking against the law and the temple. He faced the same murderous rage from the, Jew the Jewish religious leaders as they dragged him outside to stone him. But you've got to notice the remarkable transformation here brought about uh, in Paul's life through his life-changing encounter with the risen Jesus. Back in Acts 7, Paul was the one giving approval to Stephen being put to death. He'd been the ringleader, if you like, for Stephen's execution. Now Paul's back in the very same location, but this time he's the one who's willing to die for the name of Jesus. But this time, Paul, in fact, is rescued by none other than Roman soldiers. They're garrisoned nearby and charged with keeping the peace, and they hear that the city is in uproar, and so they hurry down to see what's going on. Luke tells us that when they arrive, the crowd is already midway through giving Paul a real beating. But the soldiers get there and they pull Paul out. They quickly arrest him, partly for his own protection, and decide to take him back to their barracks where they can find out exactly who he is and what it is that he's being accused of. Now, from the outside looking in, it really does look like Paul's in trouble that something has gone terribly wrong and that now with Paul arrested, the spread of the gospel is about to be terribly hindered. But it's at this point, beginning in chapter 22, that Luke records the first of five speeches that Paul will make from here through to chapter 26, publicly and powerfully defending his witness to Jesus as Paul is put on trial. The first of those speeches is to the great crowd that he's just been rescued from. After that, he's put on trial and 
brought before increasingly high up and important rulers in the Roman Empire. It's, it's just an amazing sight to see. Paul, the bruised and battered prisoner, bound in chains, bound in chains is going to be handed opportunity after opportunity by Rome itself to powerfully preach about Jesus before some of the most important rulers in the nation, while at times being shielded and protected from the mob, those that want to kill him, by a dedicated assignment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That might be one of my favorite verses in Acts, actually. Chapter 23, verse 23, where that gets mentioned, the protection that is given to Paul as he's a prisoner. Oh, how clearly God is in control of all that's taking place. Everything is still going entirely to his plan. If you remember, God had promised way back in chapter 9, verse 15, uh, at Paul's conversion, that Paul would be his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and before kings. Now, if Paul had still been walking free at this point, he would never have had the opportunity to get so close to the rulers and kings that he's now going to be escorted before to defend the gospel as a prisoner. And he's heading right to the very top. As the Lord tells him in chapter 23, verse 11, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Well, it quickly becomes apparent that the Romans just don't know what to do with Paul. They can see he's not a criminal, that he's done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. But as one writer ably describes the problem, his claim that a crucified Jewish man is the risen king of the world just keeps getting him into trouble. And I love here that Paul doesn't flinch. He doesn't panic. He doesn't change his message to get himself out of trouble. He just keeps telling people what he knows about Jesus and about his own life-changing experience of meeting Jesus for the very first time all those years before on the Damascus Road. And so he's passed from pillar to post, from one ruler to the next. And he does end up in prison for several years over this period while he's waiting. But even this proves not to be a setback. Unable to visit the churches that he loves in person, Paul gives time in prison to writing some of his most important uh, apostolic letters. Letters that will go on serving Christians for 2,000 years or more after Paul dies. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon were all written during that time. Just imagine the New Testament without some of those letters or any of those letters. Humanly speaking, we might not have had them if it wasn't for Paul being imprisoned for so long. So again, we see God's wise and providential hand even in the things that might have seemed deeply frustrating to the Christians there at the time. The spread of the gospel is unstoppable. And as we saw in the first half of Acts last month, it often spreads best when under the deepest and greatest trials. And certainly that's one of our hopes and prayers, isn't it, for the gospel today in a world that's been turned upside down by COVID-19. Well, in chapter 25, after several years of imprisonments and trials, Paul asked to be tried before Caesar himself. 
And two chapters later, he's literally shipped off to Rome. After what turns out to be quite an eventful journey at sea, and you can read that uh, at your leisure, finally Luke reports in chapter 28, verse 14, and so we came to Rome. This is it. This is where it's all been leading, the great climax and showdown that we've been waiting for. And there in Rome, Paul is placed under house arrest where he'll remain for two more years awaiting his long delayed trial. And that's where the book of Acts ends. At first sight, it really seems like there should be more, some kind of climactic ending or or showdown or some closure to the story. Maybe as you've read the book of Acts before, you've even felt disappointed with this ending. But there's actually more going on here than first meets the eye. First, there is a delicious irony at work. All throughout his imprisonments and trials, Paul has been repeatedly accused of proclaiming another king besides Caesar, which is true. He has. But look where they've brought him. He's now in Rome, uh, in the very centre of Roman power, the palace from which Caesar is said to rule the whole world as king. And now, every day, Luke tells us, right under Caesar's nose, Paul the prisoner is welcoming the citizens of Rome into his house to tell them about Jesus, the true king of everyone and everything. Right here is Jesus's topsy-turvy, upside-down kind of kingdom, growing right in the very heart of the world's most powerful empire through the suffering and witness of a lowly prisoner. That's the contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Jesus. They're totally different, but only one of these kingdoms will last. Which brings us to the second and final thing that Luke is showing us here uh, by ending as he does. He wants us to see that the story isn't over. The gospel continues to spread. The next chapter is still being written and we are a part of it today. Now, the year now, today might be 2020, but God is still the same. He's still gathering a people for himself, a a great family of people from every language and tribe and people and nation. God hasn't changed. The message of the gospel hasn't changed. It's still all about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, his death and resurrection and his free offer of forgiveness for all who repent and believe. It's still a message of saved by grace alone, a salvation that depends not one iota on what we can do for Jesus, but entirely on what he has already done for us. And finally, we're still a people who are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit for his continued presence and power. It's his work that we're a part of. It's the Holy Spirit who promises to go wherever the good news of Jesus is shared, bearing witness, chapter 14, verse 3, to the word of his grace, opening the eyes of people as unlikely as Saul, opening the hearts of people as different and diverse as Lydia and the Philippian jailer in chapter 16 to pay attention to the gospel as we speak. And there is an ultimate ending to the book of Acts. It's the one described in Revelation chapter seven, verses nine and 10, where 
The Apostle John in his vision tells us that he sees, says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, before Jesus, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We're not there yet, but that day will come and it will be the most perfect ending and the most perfect new beginning that there has ever been. And that's really what the book of Acts is all about. Let's pray.